0: I'm going to try to do my best impersonation of a gardening Moses today. Yeah, the 10 rules of gardening. Let me start this off. Let me, let me set a picture for you here. So when I do these podcasts, I do two things. Number one, either do them outside or do them inside. I actually have a podcast studio that I'm working on for outside, but it's cold out. Still haven't figured out the heating situation. Eyeing a propane outdoor heater, thinking about it. Inside, in my office, I have a white orchid in front of me. And then outside, through my window, I have a fantastic view. A lot of the conifers showing their stuff right now. Now, here's the downside. Do you ever have a neighbor? Yeah, you probably have. Who just didn't do anything about a giant dead tree, despite the fact you've been pretty friendly about it for the almost year if you've been back at your house? That's to my left in the view. So what I do to position myself for the podcast is I angle my chair just so I don't see that. So if I go about seven inches to my right, I see the dead pine tree of theirs. If I don't, I never see it. So I just pretend like it doesn't exist. Sort of my life philosophy on several subjects. Today, I'm going to try to drop some knowledge, give you an idea of how I approach things here at Natchez Glen, and just my general gardening philosophy. We're going to start off real practical on some subjects, then we're going to venture into the semi-esoteric, abstract, philosophical world of it. Because I always feel that is more important than the practical. Here's the practical. You can always change the practical right? You could always get to something go, oh, I'm going to try this type of watering. And then it turns out, oh, that didn't work out. Or I'm going to try this fertilizer. And that didn't work out. But those core fundamental philosophies, if those are your guiding light, you'll never go wrong. You'll always be there with a north star that you're shooting towards. And then everything else is just minor adjustments. So let's get right into it. The 10 rules of gardening. Number 10, don't listen to myths. You've heard me probably talk about this before in other podcasts with guests and just talking here between you and I, that there is a ton of anecdotal evidence in gardening, and that is so dangerous. Let me give you an example. When I started growing plants here, there was a website forum, and I talked about this with my friend Doug in episode story number one. This forum was about conifers, because that was my first sort of big thing. Japanese maples were number one, then conifers were number two. So as I started getting to conifers, I would look at all these pictures of these really awesome, rare, unique, super slow-growing, awesome-featured conifers that were out there in the world. And I wanted to try to grow some of them here. Well, a couple of times, I reached out on that forum, and at that point, I considered those people super knowledgeable. Clearly, at that stage of the game, they were far more knowledgeable than I was. So I reached out to them, and I was like, well, I'm going to think about growing this or think about growing that. And immediately, it was met with a chorus of, oh, that won't grow there. No, no, too hot, too humid, too this, too that. And this was from somebody who was living in, like, Michigan. And it always struck me a little bit in this school of thought. How do you know? Have you tried this before? Did you try it once, twice, three times a lady? Probably not. And if you haven't experienced it, how do you know it as fact, But it was spoken as if it was fact and not opinion? And that's something that the world of gardening has always been full of, right? There's an expression that I won't share on the podcast about opinions. And that's what a lot of people have, but not facts. So from my perspective, that's how I approached it. That was one of my core philosophies. I wasn't going to listen to that. I was going to try things. And do you occasionally try something and have it fail? I'll give you the opposite of that experience. By the way, the conifers are all still here. They all did great. Now, some of that is the magic of the Natchez Glenhouse soil. Let me give an example of what didn't work. So one of my first big influences in gardening was Adrian Bloom. Highly recommend that you do a Google Adrian Bloom and Foggy Bottom Gardens. Yes, that is the name, Foggy Bottom. Now, for me, there were two things there. Number one, he had a low-lying area where his gardens were at. Number two, he was really into conifers. But the other thing he was into were heathers and heaths. If you don't know heathers and heaths, which sounds like it's like some kind of late 60s, early 70s, like folk music band, this is now introducing the heathers and heaths. But they're a small shrubby plant that produces these beautifully tight, really small flowers. And when they're planted in mass, they look fantastic, especially if you keep them well pruned. Think of a uh, architectural element in the garden. But it also has these flowers, so it's got this moment of color. Some of them even turn this lovely, like, bronzy orange color in the cooler months. Really look great. And in particular, again, if you want structure that's there all year and flowers, too. So I had seen these, so I reached out to some people that I found that were growing heathers and heaths. And of course, because I do nothing small, I think I ordered maybe 75 of them. Can I share with you now, 10 years later, how many of those are still alive? that'd be 0.0 carried the zero. None of them. Why? Heathers and heaths, number one, they like a semi-acidic soil. We can talk about that at a later date. But the basic rudimentary knowledge of this is if a plant prefers an alkaline or acid soil and you have the opposite, it will not be able to take up nutrients well. That's pretty much the best way to look at it. And in the case of them, they like a pretty acidic soil. They're from boggy, marshy kind of areas. So like a really fast draining soil that has a more acid rate. And they're also not used to hot. They're from parts of the world where it really doesn't get hot in far northern latitudes. So being in Tennessee, they had a lot of hurdles in their way, and they didn't like any of it. They didn't like the fact the soil wasn't that acidic. They didn't like the fact that it stayed hot for so long. You just couldn't keep enough water on them. They just didn't do well. It was just one of those where you go, well, that was a real learning experience. Now, on the flip side of it, all of my fir trees, ABs, if you're playing the botanical game at home, have done fantastic. And those were also plants that were not supposed to do well here. What's the difference? Abs, fir trees, Many of them come from high altitudes, so at nighttime, it does get cool for them. That would be the argument, and they're also from areas where humidity is lower. However, many of those high altitudes also, though, experience a heat period of the year as well. The other thing they also like is if at nighttime, they at least see a cool-down effort happening. It doesn't have to be air temperature, but it could even be moisture that cools them down, so they get a differential, right? It's not just hot. Think Florida, right? It's 95 at 4 p.m., and at midnight, it's still 87. That they don't so much go with. But here in Tennessee, we do see a pretty consistent 20-degree temperature drop between daytime high and nighttime low. And mix in the fact that here, I also have this incredibly rich soil that's very dewy in the morning. They also get the cool down from that moisture as well. So it's a little bit of a double cool down. So they do get a relief at night. Hence, the fir trees do really well, where the heathers and heats didn't do well. Rule number 10, don't listen to these other people. Do what you want to do. Don't listen to Grandma Esther. Don't listen to people on the internet. Find a plant. Be willing to risk it. That's one thing. You're going to gamble on that plant. But give it a try. Maybe don't just give it a try once. Give it a try trice. Yes, I just said trice. One of my uh, favorite plant people that I ever met was a guy named Gary G. He owns a uh, small mail order conifer nursery up in Michigan. And he said, You really don't know a plant till you've killed it three times. Those, my friends, are words to live by. Rule number nine use the internet. Do you know how many times I get a little frustrated? When someone in my own family will be like, do you know dot, 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 piece of fact or information? And I go, what do I look like? Google? There is so much information now. Now, some of it's good and some of it's bad. But rule number 10, don't listen to everything. Do what you want to do. But rule number nine, use the information that's out there and take it for what it is. Think of yourself as like a scientist, right? We've got this hypothesis. Now we want to put it through the scientific method. And these other things are just informational resources. That's all we're going to take them as. We're not going to take them as gospel. We're not going to take it as the end-all, be-all of knowledge. But we're just going to listen. And along the way, it's going to give us enough breadcrumbs to follow a trail to probably good information. One of the things I struggle with is, how many how-to videos do you do? This is between you and I. Maybe you can answer this if you'd like. There are so many videos out there on the internet at this point of people dividing dahlia tubers, how to prune Japanese maples, how to do this, how to do that, that you go, do we really need another one? Some of them are are fine. They're. I mean, they're not the greatest, but they're not the worst. They're just fine. Do we need more? Is that where my effort should be put towards? If they are, let me know. I'll do them. No worries. But my big issue with it is there's so much information out there that it is an incredible resource tool that you can always, you can get so specific with it is what makes it great. Now, all the time, are the Google search results the best or are the YouTube videos that are out there on the subject the best? No. But again, at least it gets you in that direction. So use the technology you already have, right? We have the greatest library of Congress of all time sitting on our phones. Put it to use when it comes to plants and just use it as that resource tool but not a Bible. Rule number eight, make winter a thing. What do I mean, make winter a thing? You have to look at winter from two perspectives. Now, some of this is going to depend upon where in the world you're at. If you're in a really cold part of the country. This is your time for resource. This goes back to rule number nine. This is your time to use information, find things, What do you want to grow? Look at pictures, ask people questions, ask Steve on Instagram questions, find other experts out there in the universe on particular specific plant subjects and reach out to them. This is your resource gathering time in the winter if you're in one of those really cold parts of the country. Now, if you're in a more moderate part of the country, what should you also do? This is going to cheat a little bit on rule number seven coming up, but have plants in your garden that you still enjoy in winter. It'll keep you out there. What's the most important thing you can do in a garden? This is a simple one. Pay attention. And being outside in the winter in your garden is going to make you pay attention. You're going to walk by something and be like, is that dormant? Did it just drop its leaves or is it sort of dying? Because clearly there's a huge difference between those two things. But it's going to get you out there. So find some plants that provide winter interest. I'm doing finger quotes. You can't see it. It's a podcast. But those plants will get you out there in the winter. So you pay attention to other things that are happening in your property, in your garden. These are going to be really important things to keep you going throughout the season. The other element it's going to provide is It's going to give you that inspiration that you may need to spark some of those ideas to research new things that you may want to do. Now, granted, it's cold outside. If you're in the coffee, do coffee, tea, hot chocolate, whatever. Walk around, get a cup, thermos, whatever. Buy one of the overpriced Yeti mugs, whatevs, and just walk around and do a quick tour. And then if you're in one of those cold areas where you're like, Steve, my garden is under snow for two months, that's where the research comes in. So rule number eight, make winter a thing. Number seven, almost could have been an 8B situation, plant conifers. Yes, this is a thing. Now, let me go on a bit of a back tangent here. Most of us view conifers as like evergreens, you know, think Christmas trees. And there was a period of time where they got a really bad rap. They were just these big, giant behemoth trees. In fact, the Leyland Cypress at one point was no longer allowed to be planted in most residential communities throughout the U.K., because it became such an issue in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of conifers do want to become giant, huge trees that need a lot of room to grow. So people got away from them a little bit because of that. But over the last 30, 40 years, there have been so many introductions, too many introductions. But many of them are smaller and are more suited for average size gardens. And they aren't going to become those giant behemoths and cause the problems that the conifers of the 70s and 80s did. Here's why they are so important. Rule number eight, right? They're gonna keep you outside looking at something. They're gonna keep you invested in that garden 12 months a year. Even if you're in a colder climate, if in the middle of January you look outside into your garden space and you see this beautiful pyramidal structural conifer that maybe it's like I'll pick on a particular plant called Skylands. Skylands is this beautiful upright spruce that's yellow gold throughout the year. And if you look out that window in January and that tree, let's say it's been there a couple of years, maybe it's up to five, six, seven feet, you can still see it above the snow and it looks beautiful. You're going to remember that psychologically, right? That's going to tap that for you. You're going to be like, that's right. I love that skyline. I can't wait to see it in spring, but it even looks good now. It's going to keep you emotionally and psychologically involved and invested throughout the year. And again, you'll be paying attention. I know. There's no flowers. The show is not quite as spectacular from them. I always consider them a more sophisticated plant because it really makes you pay attention. As example, on Skylands, in the spring, there's also this thing that it does where it creates little pollen cones. Now, not the big cones we're thinking about, like that we decorate at the holidays and the fall with, but tiny pollen cones that eventually turn into pollen, but they're purple on Skylands. So it's this yellow gold needle with this purple underside with these cones all up and down the outward facing tips. That is sophisticated beauty. Yes, I said it. I called it that. Sophisticated beauty. And if you get to be invested in that, and you will be because the price of it will be higher as well, that will keep you going throughout the year. So don't think about conifers and evergreens in a boring way. Find ones that you think are interesting. You're going to risk a little money on them because they're going to be slightly more expensive than what you're used to paying. But that psychological advantage of you being there for 12 months a year will make a world of difference in your overall garden. Rule number six, plant flowers. Yes, I just said, sophisticated beauty. Less than with flowers. Flowers are more in your face. It's very obvious. But here's the moral of rule number six. You have to do things that are spectacular in a garden. Otherwise, you're just designing a parking lot. No offense to the boxwood. More boxwoods are sold across this country maybe than any other plant besides annuals. Why? They're in the landscape trade. None of us ever think about the subdivisions that we occasionally have to drive through or live in. There's never a part of your brain that goes, wow, I wonder how many bucks of sempervirens it took to build out this landscape here. By the way, the botanical for boxwood varieties. We don't think about that, but they are out there and they are everywhere. But what are they also? Just not that spectacular. They're there for structure which some of those conifers give you, but it's without the pollen cones. It's without the cool gold-yellow color. It's sort of the basics, right? I don't want to call them basic because that's a big insult, but maybe they're a tad basic. And if you end up with a lot of them, you know what you're going to look at your garden as? Uh, basic. It's just not going to have any inspiration for you. You're never going to have those super magical moments when you walk outside and the peony blooms, the rose, the dahlia, the lisianthus, the delphinium. Don't make me keep going, people. When that happens, there is a magic that ensues, and it keeps you, again, psychologically involved. If you don't plant flowers, you won't get it. It goes back to the whole philosophy we've talked about in several of the other stories, that low maintenance and blah, 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 blah. And low maintenance is also low return. Plant flowers because you will love them and you'll impress your friends. You'll have things to share on Instagram. You'll you'll give me a mention in one of the photos. It'll be the greatest thing ever. It'll be fantastic. You'll think super highly of what's happened that year, and then again, you'll remember and look forward to it for the next year. It creates a great cycle of anticipation. So, plant flowers. number five, work smarter, not harder. This is a tough subject. On stories number three, I talked with Paul Zimmerman and Paul brought up, I think a good point that a lot of people have this agricultural connection sometimes to growing things. And we think about the farmer and the early to bed, early to rise, getting in, being tired. You've been outside, especially if you're in warmer parts of the country. Let's be real here, folks. Funny story on this. There was a person locally who was in the flower farm business and was starting it up. And then I saw them make a comment about how they didn't like the heat that much. And it just struck me very quickly. I go, you know, you may be in the wrong pursuit. If you don't like the hot, you're probably not going to like Tennessee come June, July, August, September, and possibly October. That's five months. So maybe not the best pursuit for you. So always trying to work smarter and not harder is a great concept for all things outdoors. Unless you're running a farm, that's not what you're doing. You have a garden, and that's supposed to be enjoyable. So how do we work smarter and not harder? One of the easiest ways to work smarter and not harder is do your work early in the year. What's that going to involve? Have your irrigation plan in place. Have a mulching plan in place. Have a fertilizing system in place. Don't all of a sudden, that first week in May, if you're in the southern part of the U.S. or if you're in the northern parts of the U.S. or the world, whenever warm happens for you, don't suddenly panic. And now we're out there with a hose, and you're like, oh, I've got to water these. Do you know how many people I see with hoses watering things? And I always laugh hysterically. I mean, not hysterically, not like, ha you know, maybe a little haha. ha But it's really important to know what's coming, and that's paying attention, and that's anticipating problems before there are one. You know, no matter where you are in the country, odds are 95% that you will get hot. Have an irrigation plan in place in April when it's not hot for that day that is eventually coming. That is why I'm also a huge fan of using tools. What are tools that I love? Love my little fertilizer injector systems. Really cheap, affordable. They go on any kind of watering apparatus you can think of, like impact sprinklers, things like that. You fill them up, you put the fertilizer in there out goes the water. You do nothing. You simply can set a timer and it is done. The end, smarter, not harder. I am also someone that likes my tools. I like a scuffle hoe. By the way, this is not a product endorsement. In fact, these people don't even know I'm doing this, but there is a company based out of Missouri called Rogue Hose, R-O-G-U-E Hose. They make some beautifully made hoes that have super sharp edges. There's one called a scuffle hoe. They make it in varying sizes, but it's a uh, triangle shape. And all three edges of the triangle are extremely sharp. This is not a kid's tool. And you can go out there and you literally just, as the name would suggest, scuffle the hoe along the ground and it cuts weeds off, right? Like right below, right as the roots come up out of the ground, it can cut the plant off. And that's beautiful. Easy tool. Much better than being out there hand weeding, hands and knees, Right. Go along scuffling in the morning. And then that way you're not tiring yourself out because you don't want this to feel like it's a tiring experience. We want this to feel enjoyable. And the scuffle hoe, I don't know, I think they range between maybe $50 to $70. It's maybe a little bit more expensive than, you know, the big box special, but it's a better quality product and it does a great job. I am also a fan of machinery. If you need to till something, get a machine. Don't go out there and try to do it by hand. This is a recipe for you getting just disillusioned. I'm not so much, I need you to get the exercise. We all want that. It's not a bad thing, but I am concerned about your psychological approach to that. That's what these 10 rules are about. Let's be invested in this. Let's not create negative experience emotions with it, right? Let's not go out there. It was 90 degrees. I was shoveling. I was doing this, blah, 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 blah. And now the next time you go to do it, your brain's like, we didn't like that day. That day is no good. Stop doing this. That's what will happen to you. So try to take advantage of some of these things we had. There's nothing prideful. We aren't living in 1822. You don't ride a horse to work, don't get a shovel, and think you're going to turn over the top of soil of a 50 by 50 area. There is a tool for the job. And if you live by that motto, you're going to find yourself also being more efficient, which is clearly another big part of this gardening rule. Work smarter, not harder also leads me into one of the questions I was asked this week as well. Do I plant anything from seed? I don't. I usually, if I'm going to trial something that's new, I'm going to seek out to see if I can find a plug of something. Let me also throw this out there. I would much rather see you start with two of a plant than 50 of a plant. If you've never grown that plant before, let's say you go out and you sow a pack of seeds and let's pick a random number and say the seed pack, it's 50. And now suddenly you're growing, maybe you have great success and you're growing 40 or 50 of those plants. They all germinate. We've been blessed by great weather, but they suddenly start to fail on you. You don't know what's happened and you may get again into a little bit of that overwhelmed stage. And that is one of the words I want everybody to forget. Overwhelmed. Don't be overwhelmed by anything. This is an enjoyable pursuit in life. So I lean towards doing things from like cells or plugs if I can find them. Sometimes I can't and I'll do seeds if I have to. But so far here at Natchez House, in the, oh, let's see, 10 years I've been doing it. I think I've done things from seeds maybe three times. And all three times I was a little like meh with the experience. So when you're planning your garden, make sure you keep that in mind. Is this a smart decision? How will you know if what you're doing is smart or not? You can just ask me. Just be like, hey, Steve is this the best way to do this? Is this a smart way to do it? I'll give you my opinion. And then you can go from there because it really makes such a difference. And I am, we'll admit to this, I'm a compulsive researcher on subjects. I will find out if there are varying ways. I have the advantage of my experience, all my resource of people that I know, but I will also, going back to our previous rules, research things online to a point where I feel like Maybe I see a different take on something that I didn't think about before that I go, oh, that's smarter, not harder. Rule number four, water. Oh, it is the lifeblood of our planet. It is the lifeblood of us as human beings. And it is also the lifeblood of plants. This falls into that category of it's not if, it's when your garden will need supplemental watering. There are years, in fact, I've had a couple of them here, where the amount of supplemental watering I've done, I could probably count on one hand, but there are rare years that that occurs. So you have to have a watering plan. What does that mean? This could be as simple as, I'm going to give you another insight here. You go out to Tractor Supply Company. They sell a overhead impact sprinkler that you can mount on a T-post. T-post, long metal pole. You can get them in three feet up to six feet sizes. They get driven pretty deep into the ground. They have a little shoe on the bottom of them that holds them in the soil a little bit firmer. And you drive them maybe six, seven inches down. And then you mount that impact sprinkler on that T-post. You put it on there. You get a hose that you paid probably $15 for. You connect it to the spigot and you leave it there. That's what you do. You know what you now have? A watering plan. That's it. It could be as simple as that. Or as complicated as you go and get a fertilizer injector that you connect to that impact sprinkler. On the backside of it, you do a siphon pump that increases your water pressure a little bit. You also have a timer that's attached to that that connects to your phone. It's a smart timer. You could go all out or you could go minimalistic. Either are fine. I'm okay if you even go out and just get one of those soaker hose products and you just put that out there something to be prepared for the day where it is hot and it is dry and you need to do something. But again, you do that in April and you did the research from that from November to March. That's the time you figured out what is best for you and your budget and your setting. And then when it happens in whatever time of year it happens in your part of the country, you are prepared. But don't be caught empty-handed or empty watering can literally on a June day where it is hot. I'll give you an example of this. 2009 was the year that I added most of my bigger trees. And at that time, the trees weren't huge. They were maybe between three feet up to maybe six to seven feet. And I added them. And I'd planted them in uh, March to April, got the delivery in like mid-March. And all of a sudden, in the first week of May, it got very hot here. Very quickly. We had three days in a row where it was going to be above 90 degrees. And these plants were coming from Oregon. They're delivered here. And now suddenly, this new tender foliage is going to be under 90, 91 degrees for a three or four day period in the first week of May. This is not good for any plant, and especially newly planted trees. And I vividly remember going, Oh no, this is bad. Thinking to myself, What am I going to do here? So I immediately did two things. I went out and I got an irrigation system. At that time, I used a micro drip irrigation system. It's called Mr. Landscaper. I think they still sell it out there in the market. And it did a great job. It was pretty affordable. I was able to get water onto every one of the trees right around the drip line, which is the edge where the leaves, or in this case on the conifers, the needles ended, and really be able to just saturate that ground area right where they had been planted. The other thing I also did that year was at that same time I went out and I bought extra mulch and I created a big thick layer of about three inches of mulch all around the skirt of that tree. Again, just outside the drip line. that also helped keep that water in there where it didn't evaporate over the course of that hot period. And I am happy to report to you nearly 10 years later, all of those trees are still alive minus a couple based upon disease issues that had nothing to do with that event. But that same year of 2009, you know, it's so interesting. The rest of the year was a cakewalk. Hardly any heat at all for Tennessee. It was one of the most mild years I ever remember having here. But Those three days in May, they were scary. But at least at that stage of the game, I'd done enough research where I was like, huh, what are my options here? Quickly jumped into action and was prepared for it. So if you have your plan of attack well before those days in May or whenever that hot comes, you will be okay but know that you have to have a watering plan. I was also asked this week, do I use drip irrigation? The answer today is no, I don't. I use overhead sprinklers. The reason why I talked about this a little in the the last episode about dahlias, that I like to use overhead because I'm doing dahlias specifically, that it allows me to overhead irrigate and to use a fertilizer injector, and they uptake that. So that's why I do that. Now, in a small garden, Drip irrigation is fine. They have a product now called drip tape. And if you're just doing like a 10 by 10, 15 by 20 space, you can create enough adequate water flow where you're not creating like sweet spots for plants, meaning that the roots only go where that water is at. You can make sure that your entire area is saturated. So the roots are using all of that available ground and nutrients in your soil that you have. And the nice thing about the drip tape, it's super cheap. The only thing about it is there's varying quality of drip tapes. It's a product that's imported, and I will say I have seen tremendous variability in the quality of the products and the adapters and fittings that put the whole system together. But typically for less than, let's call it 75 bucks, you can put a whole system together for a small area, and it will probably get you through the year. But the biggest issue is it will have a plan for you, and you will have watering covered for that year. Rule number three, soil. You knew it was coming. You didn't. Everybody was like, we should do a drinking game where every time Steve says soil, you take a shot. You'll be incapacitated within 20 minutes. We did all the way to three to give soil people. Give me some credit at least. I didn't lead with soil. I didn't say rules number 10 through two are soil, soil, and soil. That would have been cheese, right? That would have been total cheese. Instead, it's rule number three. Soil is the engine. If water is the lifeblood, soil is the engine that we can't see beneath the ground. That's what also makes it so important. There can be bad things going on that you have no idea about. You are blind to the subject. And if you have heavy soil or nutrient deficient soils, there is a likelihood, a percentage chance that's higher, not guaranteed, but higher, that you will have problems below what we can visibly see. So you may walk up to a plant one day and see that it's doing completely horrible, despite the fact that everything else you're doing is correct. And it turns out it was a soil-borne issue. That's what also makes it so important. I would definitely recommend that you go back and on Instagram, you can find in my highlights, Subjects about stories. We even did a free workshop here at Nachos Glen about soil and soil health. I am planning in the coming weeks here to start doing a really high-end, fancy video series on things. It's going to live on YouTube and Instagram and all other places that I put content. That will be specifically on soil as again philosophy. That's more of how I try to go with all things gardening. Is more in a philosophical view versus a how-to view, and the soil element is going to be crucial for you to get a handle on in your garden and work with, not against, what soil type do you have? Do you have to get up to do things, meaning you don't have a lot of native soil? You have hard clay or compacted shale, wherever in the world you might be, just maybe even raw stone. Remember in the very first story, my friend Doug, who lives on a hill, he had to bring in tons, literally, of topsoil to build the garden he wanted because he was on that hill. That man would have spent his entire life frustrated with his garden if he wouldn't have made that one simple decision that changed the entire course of his garden being frustrating to his garden being rewarding. So that's why soil will always be rule number three. Rule number two, your garden is yours. Unless you live in like a subdivision and you have a really obnoxious HOA, that's another story. Do things in your garden that you want to do. We've fallen into a time where there are rules, there are stereotypes of what a garden looks like and what style of a garden is there and what's trendy at that moment. Don't be that person. Find things you really like. And what does that mean? Things that when you see a picture of them, you go. As simple as, that's pretty. That's cool. Oh, that's sort of interesting. That's neat. I'll give you an example. I really want an Australian tree fern. Why? I have no idea. There's no good reason. I like the way they look. I like the way the fronds hang down. It's sort of like palm tree and a fern had a baby, and now it looks cool. I don't have one yet. Why? I'm being too practical about it. That's what it is. Here, it'd be like a house plant almost, but it wants more humidity than a typical house can give. So I'm on this mission right now. I'm going to get an Australian tree fern. It. It's going to happen. because it's not a practical decision on my part. I may in fact buy the plant and have it die six months later. And I really won't care because it's mine. And I'm going to do it. I'm willing to take a chance. And that's how you should be with your garden. If you want to buy, as I mentioned earlier on, heathers and heaths just because you like them, but you live in Tennessee or Georgia or somewhere like that, and they don't do well, who cares? You will never remember The $40, $50 you spent on those 10, 15 years later, will you? You won't remember that $40 or $50, but you know what you will remember? Remember that time I bought that Australian tree fern? It was really good looking for like three months and then it died. Man, that thing was pretty cool. Shame that didn't work out. At least you'll have that. There's not many things that you can spend $40 or $50 on and five years later still remember it. I've gone to a lot of dinners in my life and future episodes and stories we may talk about some of that part of my life, but some of them I remember and some of them even good ones that I spent a fair amount of money on. eh, I don't really remember them that much. I'm just like, yeah, what was that restaurant we went to? It was okay, whatever. But most of the plants I bought in my life, even ones that didn't do well, the heathers and the heaths, I remember. It gave me a story, at the very least. I shared it with you on the podcast. They earned their value in that alone. Rule number two, it's your guard. Rule number one, put on your floaties, kids. We're about to get into the esoteric abstract pool. Nature is indifferent. I see this a lot, and I, I use the word magical, and I like to... Uh, Add the whimsy of talking about woodland fairies. Nature is not for us, and nature is not against us. It's simply indifferent. It's going to do whatever it does. Nature is as much about death as it is life, right? This is the philosophical moment. When we go outside and we buy compost, what is that? Dead stuff. It's what it is. But it also gives birth to live stuff. Both Sides Now, Joni Mitchell. Also, side tangent, if you go online right now, you should do this. Look at the teaser trailer for Toy Story 4. What's the song? You guessed it. Both Sides Now, Joni Mitchell. You heard it here first, though. I've been using this Both Sides Now thing for almost two years. And now the people at Toy Story have clearly stolen it. This is a Natchez Glen House trademark infringement. It's the first of what will be many. We'll go through it. I'll bring it up again. That philosophy that both things happen and that it is neither good nor bad and may in fact even be different than the way we view it or the way we even sometimes remember it is a huge part of understanding gardening. When a plant dies, it's not your fault. It's not nature's fault. It's just the way it is sometimes. These are the way things go. Nature is not out to get you, but it's also not out to really help you. You may make a decision this year and decide, I'm going to do a completely organic vegetable garden. I'd have no problems with that. It's your garden. It's the personal choice issue that you do. And then this June is the heaviest concentration of Japanese beetles we have seen in decades. And your vegetable garden is overrun and mowed down by those Japanese beetles. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just indifference. That's how this is dictated. As much as we want to talk about, and I see this a lot from the holistic group of growers out there, that we want to work with nature and not against nature, we have to understand that nature isn't doing the same for us. It's not working for us or against us. It's indifferent. So all you can do is understand that indifference and try to navigate through those waters and go, you know, on this, I'm going to do what I think works best for me. And again, my garden is rule number two. It's yours. Don't let people bully you. Don't let people give you propaganda about what you should or shouldn't do. Do what you want to do because that's what nature's doing. It's just indifferent. It doesn't care that it's the first week of May, and Steve just planted a bunch of really rare, expensive conifers and Japanese maples from Oregon. It's 92 degrees that day, even though it's the first week of May. Why? Nature's just indifferent. All I can do is react to it, and then I have to make a choice. What am I going to do? Am I going to sit back and let nature just happen, which I could have done those days? I could have just said, hey, you know what? Planted all these trees. Just gonna see what happens. We're gonna ride the wave. Maybe they fail that year. Maybe I lose six trees, let's say, out of maybe 75. And I move on, and that's fine. But I then make that choice that I was willing to make that risk. Or I intervene and I do something in that year, dropping drip irrigation, doing the extra mulching, and it works. But that's nature's view of us. Indifference. And we always have to keep that in our mindset. Many times I've theorized with tree friends. Yes, there is such a thing as tree friends. That some of the trees that I planted here did so well because of that 2009 year that I mentioned, that after that little heat blip of May, that we were really mild. That some of these trees in another year, at another time, planted. Don't make it 10 years here. They fail early. Because they were a little bit stressed that first year, they didn't get that extra root development they needed because of the cooler weather, and then the next year, when it did get hot, they were more stressed, and then they would have died. But that 2009 just worked out well for me. That wasn't by plan. That wasn't my agenda. That was nature's indifference in action. In 2010, here in the greater Nashville area, we had an epic flood event. People's homes were destroyed. For me, we have a creek in the back. It came within 10 or 15 feet of our house, and I'd planted a big garden in the back in 2010, and all of those trees were literally washed away, literally washed away. You ever see a rare Japanese maple growing out of the side of one of the parts of the Cumberland River? That's mine, because this creek leads into the Cumberland River, and that's probably my Japanese maple that washed away from 2010. What do we call that? Again, nature's indifference. 2009, mild. 2010, epic flood. All we can do is prepare, be knowledgeable, have game plans, and that's it. And navigate based upon those choices. But nature will always be the great dictator and understanding nature is indifferent. Rule number one. That will wrap up story number five for Natchez Glen House. I want you to walk away with this as both a little bit of an insight of the philosophy that I use here, and hopefully you can take some of that same thing. I have met so many gardeners throughout the last 10 years, and all of the people that I have always met, the thing that always gives them success and I think keeps them motivated and makes the best gardens are people that have a philosophical approach to it. Again, it's not the practical of it. It's not the small detail. It's the overarching decision-making that they have installed. Think of it that way. Those guiding forces have been what have led them to this fulfilling, enriching part of their life that becomes a little bit hobby, mostly passion, but the best thing about gardening is it gives back the day the flowers bloom. The day the things happen that you've seen go into action, that you go, I remember when I planted that tree, and look how good it looks today. All of that is what gardening can give to you. Look at my
1: window, what do I see? A little blue bird looking back at me. He sings a song all alone in his nest, and I wonder if he's singing about loneliness. And take it on in As I listen to a number by my new blue friend Is he looking for a lover or did one just leave? Does he really feel blue or does his color the same? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings, a song tune Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird in blue? Don't hang around too long A mocking bird makes a living off of other bird songs And I heard somewhere that a robin weeps But the bluebird is still one that I can't read Tell me why is the bluebird blue Is a song he sings, a song to tune Does he feel like I feel since I lost you Chair. The bluebird's blue and but so in my hand I feel about as low as the bluebird fly, he asks Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings, a somber tune Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird, why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune. Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird in blue? Yeah, baby, why is the bluebird blue? Tell me why is the bluebird blue burden blue?